Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, organic advocate and best-selling author Joel Saladin will be my guest to talk about something that's rapidly disappearing and critical to our ability to grow organic, clean food, farmland. So I'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Joel Saladin. Good afternoon, Joel, and welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Joel, how long have you been farming? We've been here since 1961, so we came when I was four. If you're, if you're quick at math, you can figure out my age that way. And um, and so I'm second generation here, and now day-to-day operations are operated by our son and his wife Daniel and, and Sherry, and uh, and so we're you know we're, we're we're four generations on the farm. My my dad passed away in, in 1988, but mom is still hale and hearty at 92, and uh, so we have four generations. Our grandchildren here as well. Uh, it's very cool to have four generations on the farm. Wow. You have such a blessed family. God bless you. That's wonderful. In regards to farmland, a lot of people are not even aware that the land is changing. What are some of the things that are going on that are of major concern? Well, the things that are changing are that uh, you know that the average American farmer is now 60 years old. That's never that's never happened in in American history, and. Um, so in, the, in, in almost in any uh, country, uh, I don't think that's I think it's unprecedented in the in the history of civilization actually. Um, and so in the next, so what what the you know the demographics that the universities are telling us is that in the next 15 years, 50 percent of all agricultural equity will change hands. Now that's not only land, that's building houses, machinery, barns, sheds, you know the whole the whole shooting match. Uh, that 50% will change hands in the next 15 years. That has never happened in any culture during peacetime. The only time that level of equity transfer, of, of agricultural equity transfer, has ever happened in a culture has been under you know, foreign conquest, like you know, the Huns came in and took over Rome or whatever. And so this is, this is unprecedented. We're into uncharted waters. The question, of course, is, well, where is this equity going to go? Is it going to go to neighbor farmers? Is it going to go to Monsanto? Is it going to go to the Chinese, the Saudi Arabians, uh, you know, investment companies in Wall Street? Um, uh, you know, wh- where is it going to go? And, of course, people like me are pushing hard that it actually goes to a new, young, young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, entrepreneurial, land-loving, customer-loving, local-centric, people-centric uh, generation of young people. One of the concerns that was expressed by one of our listeners is in regards to corporations that are basically coming out of the woodwork to buy pristine farmland that is rich in topsoil for commercial purposes. 
whether it's renewable energy or any other type of endeavor. Why is this such a problem? Well, we're not we're not making any more land except maybe in Hawaii, you know, from volcanoes. But but um, you know, as the population increases, and of course, as much of the you know prime farmland in the world deteriorates under chemical uh, chemical agriculture, uh, desert, desertification is still uh, marching pretty rapidly. Aquifers are depleting, and so the the land base to support the population base is you know it's quite critical you know it's a it it's a real issue the whole idea of land as a as just nothing more than a commodity like a like a shirt or a you know or a or a dvd or a you know a, a kitchen mixer um and i don't have all the answers but i i can tell you that um that just treating land as a commodity to whoever the highest bidder is 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 uh, it, it, ha- it has some problems. And again, I, I'm I'm wrestling with what answers are, but um, in that regard, I, I'm not, I'm not a pure capitalist when it comes to just land being treated as co- as a commodity. And 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 that's that's what's happened now as as farmers age out. We, we call it aging out. Uh, and most of their children don't want the farm. Uh, the children want the money from the farm, and so what happens is the children inherit the farm and then, you know, very quickly sell it, and um, you know that 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 goes away. Many times the children wouldn't sell if they actually had somebody, a surrogate, to love it, to steward it, to caress it, and take care of it. And so, uh, you know, right now I'm as concerned about the the young people who are able and passionate about caressing that land just you know w- warm bodies on the land as i am the fact that the land is being sold you know for you know non-farming purposes but the question is how do you go about finding whether it's individuals or even a corporation that is willing to take care of that land and to continue the nurturing of that land and not just turn it into some sort of commercial enterprise where they're using all sorts of different chemicals to uh, keep down the vegetation and whatnot or destroy the natural habitat that's there in order to build, whether it's housing or any type of technology. There's so many different concerns. How does one go about finding the right people to continue keeping that land sustainable and available for agriculture. It's a huge problem. I see with a number, I see with a number of older farmers that I know in upstate New York, they're struggling with this and some of them don't have kids. Mm -hmm. They are at a point where they feel, okay, well, who's going to take care of me? Right. Well, and, and uh, frankly, the, the farm, you know, for, for an average farmer, uh, all of his equity is tied up in the land, and so, um, so when he says, "Well, who's going to take care of me?" The idea, I mean, the, the normal, the normal succession plan is that a young person takes it, whether they're related or not related. A young person takes it, and um, and and moves, you know, uh, with with either rent or or payments, and provides supplemental income for the 
older farmer, the the, the uh, retiring farmer, um, in, in old age, and that and that's how you kind of uh, have a succession plan that that ensures that the older couple doesn't just become destitute. Um, and and so you know that that's the thing. Some some folks are of course putting their farms in easements. We don't we don't recommend easements simply because it's very very difficult. We find that most easement holding uh, out organizations uh, do not appreciate the new um, the new direct marketing requirements that that a farm needs if they're going to direct market to their community, which which entails. Uh, very, very micro-manufacturing things, whether it's bottling milk or milling wood or whatever, and and uh, many of the easements do not allow for that kind of thing. So we're, we're, what we're seeing is a lot of the, some of the early easement holders are actually having to, to sue the easement organization for the freedom to be able to do some of these new direct market uh, uh, things where we have to move some of these enterprises that have been segregated from the farm and move them back integrated on the farm. But um, I, I would just tell, I've, I've written a book, Fields of Farmers, uh, that, that delves into this a, a great deal. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a two-way street. Um, many of the farmers who are aging out, one of the problems is they have not built a farm that is, that is a two-salary farm. And I've come to the conclusion that if your farm does not provide two salaries, it is not a sustainable business. You can't have a business. If all it does is provide one income, then, yes, you have a job, but you don't have a business. A business, by definition, an ongoing business has to have some sort of a successional, a successional element, and that entails two salaries and preferably Two salaries spread over two gener- over two different generations. Um, so that means that a farm has to be structured uh, so that it does provide two incomes. And most of our farms are not structured that way. They're just seen as you know a- as a job or you know a vocation that certainly farmers enjoy, but not primarily as as a business. Too many farmers don't look at at, at a farm. Uh, as a business, and so uh, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg. Um, uh, do do I do I challenge the elderly farmers? Okay, you got to restructure here so that you've got two incomes. Well, they're too old and they don't want to start new things. Um, and so my encouragement for them is seek out a young person. You know, our daughter-in-law has started a, a website for this matchmaking called Eager Farmer. It's a matchmaking service for aging out farmers and young farmers that want to get in so that they can get together and vet themselves to each other, ask the right questions so you get a, so you get a marriage that won't uh, collapse in a year. And, and um, um, there, are, you know, there are opportunities here for young people to enter in some sort of a lease or a lease-buy arrangement. Uh, the, the older people have to be willing to give a price concession. They can't just... They can't just say, well, we want, we want market prices for this because that's what the market says. You know, remember, when you bought that farm 50 years ago or 60 years ago or inherited it from your uh, uh, family, um, you got it at a reduced rate uh, back in the day when the land was priced based on its productive capacity, and today it's not based that way. I mean, I look at my own situation. 
when mom and dad came to this farm in 1961, they bought the whole farm, barn, buildings, equipment, the whole shooting match, lock, stock, and barrel for $49,000. Feeder calves, so that was 90 bucks an acre. Feeder calves were selling for $30, 100 weight. That's a three-to-one relationship between the land price and the and a and a uh, cattle price, ninety dollars to thirty dollars. Today, the land is arguably, you know, worth uh, um, you know seven thousand dollars an acre, and those same calves are bringing two dollars a pound. So uh, the land has gone up uh, way more than than what its productive capacity is. So now instead of a three-to-one relationship, it's a 35 to 1 ratio. That's why what Grandpa did will not work today. It's a completely different you know, economic thing, which means we've got to have ways to enter farming, and I've written about this a lot in Fields of Farmers, of, of, of enterprises that are not capital intensive. That's why on our farm we do uh, modular, mobile, management intensive uh, uh, systems with, with, rote, with movable uh, shelters, movable water, movable control means with livestock, so that we can so that we can literally have a portable farm. And when you have a portable farm, the where it is is not so important. If you're if you're you know down the road at a certain place, uh, you can take your farm and you can move it you know to another place. If you have your chickens in eggmobiles instead of stationary houses, but you have your or you have your cattle not in uh, uh, concrete, you know, uh, feedlots, but they're they're actually uh, grass finishing on with just electric fence uh, electric fence control mechanisms. Then you know everything is on hoof, everything is more movable. It's on wheels. You you can move the whole farm around, and so the land ownership comes out of the picture, and you can you can place your farm on an existing piece of property either as complementary. Or as the as the main enterprise on land that you don't own, suddenly then there's a low capital entry place. The problem is that the, the the truth is that when the hurdles and the impediments to entry are so high that young people can't get in, then old people can't get out. So there's got to be some movement on both on both sides here. The the aging out farmer has to be, you know, come out of his uh, hermit curmudgeon shell and embrace a young person and not consider them as just, you know, uh, uh, old dumb young people who don't know anything, uh, but actually, you know, embrace somebody to join. And the young people need to appreciate that uh, they're going to, that, that, that they're receiving concessions in order to enter. And if you can get both of those parties uh, to, to buy in to a little bit of give, uh, you know, we can we can get these aging out farms uh, populated with a with a new group of really land caressing, uh, loving, passionate young people. From what I understand, they have a similar situation in Germany, where there are people who are on waiting lists to actually farm the land, and the landowners lease it out, and the people that are interested in farming the land, whether it's grow vegetables, raise livestock, what have you. That's exactly what they do. In America, how difficult is it to get something like that going? And also, even if you were to just remain an independent farming operation, how tough is it today? Uh, well, I've got, I've got kind of two things to respond to that. First of all, you've got to realize 
that one in three dollars uh, in the European Union, the EU budget, one in three dollars goes as subsidies to farmers. You think American farmers get subsidies? You ain't seen nothing till you've seen the ones in in the EU. So there, there's a the, the EU has decided to you know to 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 put that um, you know in farming. So it's a little bit of an un, unfair. Um, unfair comparison to just say, well, you know, those young people are jumping into it. Yeah, but uh, when you go over there, um, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't believe the number of things that uh, that those farmers can turn in for reimbursement from the government. So we don't have that, and, and, and I, I don't think that we should. Um, all we need to do is create a climate that encourages um, that encourages direct farm marketing. I mean, the, the the fact is that the localization movement from from fiber to food to artisan craft, uh, the localization movement is huge. It's it, it's 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 a uh, it's a counterpart, uh, a balance, if you will, on this teeter totter of balance. It's a balance to the to the global to the you know, we we have the expansion of globalism and we have the expansion of localism uh, at the same time, which is a, a very typical you know cultural kind of uh, uh, yin-yang, you know, offset. So what we've got, to, if we want to um, stimulate these young people to get in, um, what we have to do is, is, is reduce those barriers of entry, many of which um, are, 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 are created by an inappropriate regulatory climate and an insurance climate. So you know you can't sell you can't sell to a restaurant unless you've got you know two million dollars worth of liability and product liability insurance. Um, you know you can't. Uh, then if you have somebody working with you, then you've got workman's comp. Well, workman's comp is an industrial system that doesn't compute for a small farmer. So suddenly a small farmer, you know, that's that's doing a bunch of a bunch of different kinds of things, uh, suddenly is paying workman's comp for uh, you know high rates for high rates of exposure that the small farmer doesn't have. I mean, uh, these are all things that we wrestle with every day, and um, a- and they're huge because you know you're a, you're you're a farmer out here trying to water the chickens. Meanwhile, you've got a desk stacking up with licenses, compliance forms, and you've got a bunch of calls to bureaucrats and meeting with your attorney and stuff. And 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 so the the embryonic the em- the ability to launch an entrepreneurial enterprise and access your neighbors with food. Um, to launch that embryonically is becoming more and more uh, uh, difficult, and so uh, you know, that's you know, th- this is of course a policy thing. But this is why I'm such a big fan of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Um, you know, they're probably doing more to uh, break down some of these regulatory barriers of anybody in the world. And um, and I can't say enough good about the Farm to Consumer. Legal Defense Fund. They're making templates for, for example, uh, milk shares. They're they're getting uh, they're quietly getting written uh, written approval from Food Safety Inspection Service on numerous things. So there's a, there's a lot going on here in the undercurrent, and there are ways to restructure your business so that you come out from under the what's the legal term is uh, in commerce. Uh, you come out of the in commerce, so you know from CSAs to you know to herd shares to uh, to co-ops to where where people pool money and you actually run a, a food co-op where the food's actually owned by a pool of people 
and therefore uh, shared risk makes it comes out come out of commerce. There, there's a lot of really cool, clever things to do that are being done, and so I'm trying to you know uh, promote and and help people be aware that uh, you know uh, there, there's a lot more options here than just complaining about the situation. What advice do you have for our listeners out there who have pristine farmland? and are at a point where they can't manage it themselves but are looking to do exactly what you're talking about. I, I think that's amazing. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> at, at the risk of sounding self-serving, first, you know, they can get on eagerfarmer.com and see and see if there's a young match out there. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of people looking for these things. There are other matchmaking services. I mean, I know the Pennsylvania Sustainable Ag Organization uh, runs one. Uh, NOFA, the New England uh, group, uh, they have – one, uh, the Beginning Farmers Program, uh, uh, Severin, uh, there in Massachusetts, uh, is running a, a national, uh, you know, Beginning Farmer. They're running a lot of things. They're, they're actually printing a handbook. I, I don't know if it's out yet, but it's, a, it's actually a handbook for existing landowners on, on how to create a platform um, so that a young person can come and sprout, essentially – um, you know, she's saying, look, we have the young people ready to do it, but but what we have are the old well-heeled landowners are are not thinking about what has to happen for a young partner, and I'm not saying partner in a formal sense, a, a young person to enter their life, you know, uh, on the land as far as what you responsibilities you have to let you have to you have to give some freedom, okay, uh, you know, to a young person, and of course have your you know have your protections in there as well. So um, so there, there's a lot being done there. The, the Greenhorns uh, is her organization, and uh, they're just doing some really really great work and some very creative um, successional land transfer systems where, for example, a group of a group of customers may uh, may go together and and buy a farm, and uh, and, and then you know it, it it takes the land out of out of commoditization. Um, so there, you, you, the thing is, if you really want if you really want to see the farm continue as a farm and not cash out, well, you know. Um, you can't just snap your fingers or complain and expect your situation to change. You've got to act- actively pursue these organizations and these um, these opportunities that offer some alternatives. Uh, that means you got to you know you got to turn off the TV and you got to um, um, get out there and and to use the metaphor, you've got to plow this ground as diligently and aggressively as perhaps you've plowed some of your fields in the past and uh, and actually pursue um consider it a you know consider it a hunt consider it a courtship if you will uh you know to find that that person and uh, what i see is uh yeah i just don't see any um older landowners that are willing to you know to invest that kind of um you know that kind of seeking that kind of search into into a young partner uh they just they just wring their hands and complain about their situation and that's about it. <laughs> that's about it and say if somebody does find a match and 
if they do go to eagerfarmer.com, mm-hmm. what are some things that the farmer should consider when engaging in this type of relationship, especially with somebody that they don't know very well, but you know, obviously there's a common interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any advice for things to look for and things to avoid? Well, the main thing is, you know, don't jump off the cliff too fast. Uh, view it as a courtship, so it's going to take some time. There's got to be probationary periods. Uh, you know, there, there's got to be um, a, a little, you know, there, that's all part of the vetting process. I call it the track record. Uh, nobody's going to, you know, release equity. Nobody's going to release equity to somebody that uh, that is untried and unproven. You're going to, you're going to release equity very very gently very very slowly um and so there there, you've got to build trust and when you have you know when you have a high level of trust uh things can move very rapidly and when you have a low level of trust of course everything has to go extremely slowly so in your assumption you're right uh if you come together and there's a very low level of trust which would be normal in in a, a beginning relationship well then you know, you have some pretty tight reins on the freedoms that, that, that each party can do. But uh, once you, you know, once you develop some trust, then, of course, you know, those reins can come off and it can be every, anything from, I mean, I've actually had letters from from uh, landowners, you know, 80 years old, thinking, you'll find me a young person to inherit my farm to. You know, well, the thing is, you know, 80 years old is not really the time to start this procedure. You know, as soon as your kids, uh, indicated their their desire to not come back to the farm. Well, I'm just using the, the most typical example. It's not every example, but that would be a typical one. Uh, as soon as you as soon as you knew uh, there was no succession, you know, back when you were 40, uh, that's the time to begin looking at how can this you know how, how can this farm support two salaries, and you know how can I how can I replace myself, and um, and, and and so, you know, those people are out there. Those those uh, kind of deals are out there. And, um, and 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 by the same token, as a young person, you've got to be willing to live in a yurt, an RV, a mobile home, a, you know, a cave, whatever. Uh, you know, not go to the movies, not go out to eat. And imagine uh, that. And, yeah, and and uh, you know, grow your own food, grow your own uh, firewood for heat, and uh, live on. On, on what you can produce yourself, drop your living expenses way down. Um, goodness, how many how many young people are kept from being able to do this simply from college debt? You know, so um, maybe you don't want to go to college. You know, maybe you should just forego that and just start you know uh, interning or helping or partnering while you're young and you don't have bills and you don't have a, a family. You know, that's the time when you're flexible and you can. Goodness, you know, you're indomitable. You can be cold or hot or live, you know, frugally or go to an outhouse, you know, to go to the bathroom. The, the thing is, you, if you want it, you gotta, you gotta want it. You, you, you uh, when we talk about passion, you gotta. Uh, nothing just falls in your lap, you know. And people look at us and what we've done, and and, and I, I could wax eloquent about, you know, our early years and the, you know, driving a fifty dollar car and. You know, uh, we, you know, we we lived we lived frugally, um, spelled with O's and about ten O's put together. Um, but you know, we're we're enjoying 
we're enjoying leveraging those early frugal years now. And so you know, there, there will be a time. There will be a time when your frugality will uh, bear out. But that will be down the road a ways, not today. Well, I think there are a number of young people, especially young families, that are reconsidering the direction that they're taking for their own future. Right. And it's basically due to necessity. I know I couldn't wait to get off my parents' farm, and then the minute I started having issues with my allergies, the first thing that I did was go right back to it. Mm -hmm. So while I don't own and operate a big farm, I still incorporate many of the things that I learned from the farm into how I live today, and that includes organic gardening, so on and so forth. Necessity really does play a huge role in this decision and how passionate somebody is going to be, especially if they have to provide for a family or just provide for themselves because of the inability to obtain clean, organic, locally grown food, which is still a big problem in this country. Sure, sure. Uh, yes, you're right. And, and, of course, we also know that necessity is the mother of invention. And so, you know, Teresa and I are very grateful that we did not come from a wealth. Neither one of us came from wealthy families. We didn't have, you know, a bunch of money behind us. We we did have the platform of, of raw, raw land that we were able to, you know, to, to build something on. But we did not have, you know, financial, uh, you know, financial nests very big. And as a result, guess what? We got really, really creative, you know, about how we lived and what we spent money on, how to save, and um, and I think I think that is absolutely one of the you know one of the signal biggest elements. Uh, we've just as a culture, you know, we've we've been living in luxury. We're we're wealthy. We're a wealthy place. We just don't have that uh, what that survival. We don't have that that base survival instinct. I think that many of our forebears had we just think it ought to be easier and um and uh, nothing worth having is easy no it certainly isn't joel i have a question for you in regards to opportunities through the usda especially some of these grants and loans that are being offered for example there's a loan that's available for beginning farmers and ranchers but one of the conditions is is that you cannot have operated a farm or ranch for more than 10 years and they have some other requirements but that's that's just one opportunity out there another one actually pertains to the protection of pollinators i spoke to a gal who's maintaining a substantial amount of farmland out in california and she said that it's not something that she would pursue basically because it's too restricting. And I thought that was quite interesting, especially since you figure that the money from the government would go towards helping you to build different habitats. But she said that many of these grants and other financial opportunities offered by the government are actually very restricting. What are your thoughts on these things? <laughs> well, you've got a friend there in that lady. Uh, we we have never we have we have uh, refused to take any grants or government money, and I'll tell you why. Yes, you're right. Uh, by the time you fill out all the reports and go through all the paperwork, you might as well just do it yourself. And and they are extremely restricting. Um, the the ones that we've looked at mainly have been with you know conservation things or 
you know, uh, water development, things like that. And, and the fact is that the, the requirements are engineered uh, to incredible, um, incredibly expensive and unnecessary measures to where even if they're going to cost share money with you, you may as well just do it yourself because of the hassle and the restrictions on the uh, on the granting process. Remember, remember, uh, there is an orthodoxy in our culture, and of course the government is part of that orthodoxy, and that orthodoxy uh, does not view uh, direct marketing people on farms and the folks at the USDA don't want people on farms. They view them as they, they bring disease and sickness and. And so everybody's paranoid of people coming to farms. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, food can only be safe if it's sterile. And uh, so, you know, it's fine to drink Coke and Mountain Dew, but, uh, you know, that raw milk will kill you. And, I mean, there's, th- these are the orthodoxies of our day. And, and the government can never be innovative. It, it is always um, there to maintain the status quo, to maintain the, the orthodoxy of the day. And so... Um, you know, so people like us are absolute heretics in this. And uh, yeah, if you want to, if you want to make your head explode, just you know, try to try to be a round peg going through a government uh, uh, square hole, and uh, you'll find out real fast what it's like to uh, to make your head explode. Yeah, it's that basically was the general feeling by many of the farmers that I talk to about this very subject and it's a shame because you figure if they're looking to do something like for example protecting pollinators that it would be fun or the funds would be more available and easy to access and that's not the case it's almost as if they put it out there just to save face well sure there's exactly a lot of that a lot of the uh you know any little monies for organics or farmers markets or whatever you're exactly right. I, I call it a sop. It's a, it's a little, um, it's a little sop out there. I mean, they're they're they're, they're spending, you know, billions of dollars on uh, production and food that is industrial. Uh, I mean, that includes the SNAP program and whatever, uh, you know, the school lunch program, I and mean, that's all under the USDA, and it's it, it's 99% industrial. There are some you know, little local uh, integrity endeavors, but they're 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 a pittance. They're, um, and so yes, I think the government does uh, absolutely do that. It gives lip service to the other side just to uh, you know just to save face, uh, but it's a uh, you know it's it's strictly lip service. It, it they don't actually you know they don't actually uh, mean 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 to help that. <laughs> There's too much too much money in the other. Joel, where do you see the future of farm, or what do you see as far as the future of farming? Well, the one thing I don't uh, do, uh, June, is is uh, prophesy because I, I for fun, I, I collect uh, prophecies, and uh, there are really some hilarious ones, you know, like like um, uh, you know Howard Taft in uh, 1910 that that said, you know, why would why would women want to vote? And you know, there's all sorts of uh, interesting things out there. Uh, so I don't prophesy. I actually don't know. Um, I mean, you read you read the book, you know, Collapse and Guns, Germs, and Steel, and different things, and and you realize that that um, often what we what we're not concerned about um, ends up 
being our Achilles heel and what we are concerned about is not. And so there, there's definitely a, a local food tsunami going on, but we're still only, you know, arguably well under 3% of the food system. Meanwhile, as we gain some ground, the wagon circling on the industrial end from Monsanto, Sibagaygi, and, and the insurance companies, and, the, and, of course, their fraternity at the U.S. Duh, I call it the U.S. Duh, um, is, is certainly uh, circling the wagons. And, um, and so the pushback is becoming more and more aggressive and offensive. And uh, so, you know, my, my sense is that things have to get worse before they get better. That's about as far as I'll go. I think, I think that uh, the, the culture right now is not ready to embrace a face-to-face accountability as for example, for food safety, I mean, if, if I come to your farm and look around, smell around, ask around, and you and I as consenting adults want to uh, uh, trade money for food, um, most people in America believe that that should not occur. That should be illegal because you're a dirty farmer or you're a dirty business person. Businesses are dirty. They're all shysters, and we need a government to protect us from all these sleazy business people. And that, that, that true win-win trade, you know, cannot occur without bureaucratic intervention. That is pretty, that is pretty ubiquitous in our culture right now. I mean, that's, the, that's, the, that's what's driving the Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, uh, um, um, uh, you know, presidential bid is it, victimization, you know. And, and, and I need the government to uh, set my wage, to set my health, to set my food standards, to set my uh, life to set my bills to set my college you know i mean just name your name your entitlement and uh, and that that entitlement mentality um, uh, eliminates personal responsibility from our lives and when you eliminate personal responsibility then you also don't have any liberty i mean if you have a if you ha- if you can't make any decisions you've just eliminated your freedom you know ben franklin said you know, if you're willing to give up freedom for security, you deserve and get neither. That's a paraphrase, but that's pretty close to what he said. And and so we are we are in a day where, you know, the idea that neighbor to neighbor, you know, uh, neighbor to neighbor food commerce could actually occur uh, in an embryonic entrepreneurial state, um, you know, is fast is fast becoming certainly marginalized and very quickly um, criminalized. And so I, I, my, my take is that it's got to get a lot worse before it gets better. And I don't know what worse means. I don't know if worse means economic collapse, if worse means, uh, you know, pathogenic collapse, foodborne bacteria collapse, hunger, uh, desert. You know, I don't know what that looks like, you know, a, a, a complete health health uh, breakdown, you know, where, where health care just eats us up because we're, the industrial food is, is uh, you, you, where you can't, you can't afford the remediation of industrial food, you know, where we, we could arguably be fast getting there. Uh, I don't know where that is, but I do believe, you know, if you read the book, you know, the, the civilization, the collapse, uh, the fact is that cultures generally um, – do not respond to to issues in time. Uh, usually, there has to be 
some sort of a major tipping point collapse of some sort before they wake up and say, oh, uh, we should have been paying attention to this. And that's, that's, that's the pattern of history, and so it's a pretty safe bet to assume that that's you know, kind of where our country has to go to. That's what we're seeing in the commercial migratory beekeeping community. We're seeing so many commercial migratory beekeepers that are barely hanging on, and they're doing things that are just ridiculous just to keep their businesses alive. And these people are desperate. They're taking out second mortgages on their homes as they lose their businesses. And for what? For a society that doesn't even value what they do. So I agree with you, Joel. I think that things will get worse before they get better. And I think it's primarily because industry has just done such a tremendous job with their PR campaigns, spreading propaganda, making people think that everything's fine, that this is the way to go. And, you know, and, and look, face it, uh, we all have a little bit of a lazy streak. Uh, we're all looking for something for nothing. I mean, look at how much money is spent on the lottery. Uh, and, and so, hey, if, if I can, if I can uh, have more time to read People magazine and see what's happening with the Kardashians and don't have to spend any time in the kitchen, that's great. You know, it's a, it's a good life. Um, and so, so I, I, you know, I, I, I agree. I agree that, that certainly, um, clever advertising has exploited, uh, this very well-known, um, you know, uh, uh, propensity in people to get something for nothing. And, you know, you can't get nutrition for nothing. You can't get, uh, happiness for nothing. You can't get health for nothing, um, and and uh, and yet you know we're told every day that yeah you can you know squeeze cheese out of a Velveeta bottle and that's as good as you know the stuff that sprouts legs and walks off your table from the you know from the cave cheese guy and of course that's you know we we absolutely know that that is not true and yet there's there's something in us that we just we just are always looking for <laughs> something for nothing which is you know squeezable cheese. A wise man once said, folks, this ain't normal. Wonder <laughs> who that right. could have been. <laughs> That's right. I wonder who that could have been. That was probably one of my favorite books that you wrote. I still talk about it to this day, even though you were on the show so many years ago. I think that book in particular, and folks, what I'm referring to is Joel wrote a book called... Folks, This Ain't Normal. This yeah. Ain't Normal, Yeah. He addresses some of the issues that are being talked about today that were huge problems a couple of years ago, even 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, sure are. Mm -hmm. The point remains, when is society going to wake up and start making the people that should be accountable take the responsibility that they should and stop looking for shortcuts? Things that are easy are not right necessarily, and things without a doubt that are right are not easy. And I think that's always been like that. But the point remains, we need to really start thinking about our food production, who's growing it, how it's being grown, and what we're doing to the land. We only have so much farmland available, as you pointed out, Joel, and we need to start doing something because if we get to a point where we start importing our food because we can't grow it here, 
that's just going to be well, no, that's no, just a disaster. Yeah. No, no society has ever survived uh, food dependency. No society has ever survived food dependency. So, um, so a, a community a community is is vulnerable when it doesn't feed itself, and certainly a whole country is vulnerable when it doesn't feed itself. Joel, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. Could you share with our listeners the title of your new book once more? Uh, the new book is uh, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, Caring for All of God's Creation. I'm real excited about it. It's the 10th book. I call it my coming out book. My sound bite is it's Rachel Carson for Christians. And I think that uh, there's a, a large faith community out there that desperately needs to be inspired and challenged about creation stewardship. Since I am one, I can speak the language and talk to my people, and that's that's what's coming out. So if you're a non-faith person, get it for all your Christian friends that don't get it. And if, you, if you're a Christian, you know, get it and, and see if it doesn't speak to your heart. Thank you. And your other book is called Field of Farmers. Yes. Yes, uh, Fields of Farmers. Um, that came out a couple of years ago, and that was written... Uh, primarily for these whole, you know, successional issues that we've talked about, how to structure partnerships and how to, you know, how to get uh, those two salaries and structure a farm so that it can uh, move on into the future. Thank you, Joel. And, folks, please check out the companion article on theorganicview.com, which will have all Joel's information as well as the titles of his books and his information about his farm, Polyface Farms. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.